Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Yeah. Wow, Jake. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Oh. I was going to say that's me. Yes, Lynn Cullen. Tis I. That is I would be correct. That's me is incorrect, right? Yeah, I guess. Who the hell cares? Sometimes I do. Sometimes, in fact, I do. So, um, before we get into heavy stuff, it was about a year ago that I overheard some woman talking in just like rapturous tones about a blanket uh, that she had gotten. And and it was clear that this blanket was like extraordinarily heavy. <laughs> and she said she has never slept so well. And she was just like, I mean, rapturous. What is the word? And I remember thinking, what the hell? And why would heavy? I don't know. And then last night I saw a treat, uh, treat a tweet by uh, Randy Bauman of uh, WDVE. And he, it was about the heavy blanket, <laughs> which apparently has done nothing but gained more rapturous uh, reviews since I overheard that conversation. And he just tweeted this, and I think it's so, <laughs> it's so smart. Um, he said, it, it says something about the times that we live in that the number one adult Christmas gift this year is a super heavy blanket that sort of like <sighs> sits on top of you and traps you in a kind of comfort that is designed to calm you down. So there's something very visceral going on with this blanket. So I, I need to hear from folks who have one of these things. And it doesn't make you hot. I mean, too hot. And where does its heaviness come from? And why is it so wonderful? I'll be damned if I'm going to buy one, but I'd like to experience one. Is there something about the fact that it's so heavy I'm wondering what it does. It must do something chemically in our heads. It really must. It must set off all kinds of feelings of safety, right? That's what it must do. It must, something about that heaviness and almost as if you're trapped under it must create maybe endorphins going nuts or something and I'm just asking. That's the number one adult Christmas gift. So I'm I'm just telling you, there might be this extraordinarily heavy blanket under your uh, under your Christmas tree, and I I have not uh, experienced it. But I'm I am now a year later, after wondering about it, I'm even more curious. Not so curious that I'm gonna do anything about it. Uh, city paper today. 
comes out with its uh, Pittsburghers of the Year, and uh, I think uh, they've done a wonderful job of ferreting out some of the wondrous organizations and things in Pittsburgh in the last year. Um, they have three three organizations, and, well, two organizations and a uh, and a video <laughs> that are Pittsburghers of the Year. Uh, one is uh, Wasi Muhammad and the Islamic Center of Pittsburgh. Um, Wasi Muhammad is somebody that I got to know this year as well, and I'm I'm just a huge, huge fan of his. I he's an extraordinary uh, young man, and stepped up in a way that uh, that made an awful lot of Pittsburghers who otherwise wouldn't have known about him uh, sit up and take notice um, after, of course, the Tree of, Tree of Life massacre. Um, also, uh, 412 Food Rescue, a, a just incredibly successful uh, nonprofit that wants to cut down on food waste and wants to get food to people who are hungry or who could use it. And uh, this group, which relies on tons of volunteers, has, uh, I'm sure, made a big dent in food waste in, uh, in Pittsburgh by picking up food from restaurants, grocery stores, other places that would otherwise have gone into dumpsters and getting it to people and agencies so that it will be consumed and enjoyed. It's a wonderful, and, and there's th they've become so successful that they're hoping to uh, take their, their model uh, into a lot of other zip codes, not zip codes, uh, area codes. And I think I've even started uh, getting into, is it seven? Two four here seven three four I get mixed up two four because I also have a lot of seven what's seven three four because I have some of th those in my in my contacts um, oh thank you Aaron Aaron says I can't wait to get one of these heavy blankets <laughs> I have always tried to pile on as much weight as I possibly can to sleep I liken it to the Oh, the squeeze machine that Temple Grandin invented to calm animals and autistic people seems to work for more than just them. Ah, so it is. It's something, it's something uh, just visceral, chemical goes on um, when we are gently constrained drained, I guess. I mean, I guess some people might feel claustrophobic, but that's not the reaction here. The reaction is one of huh, calm. But where does that come from in our head? When we were kids, did we... Well, when you think of how we bundle up little babies or swaddle them. I guess it's like adult swaddling. 
maybe. Um, I don't think it would work for me, but I, I don't know. Clearly, this is whatever it is. It, does it have a name? <laughs> is there just one? Is somebody getting extraordinarily rich? I have seen no um, ads or anything or commercials for it. So I, I was that's why I was so shocked that it was like the thing. Because if it's the thing, you'd expect to be seeing advertising. Where do you, you know, whatever. I, I guess I don't get out much anymore, so um, I don't know. Uh, what else? I, I want to note and mourn the passing of uh, Penny Marshall. Um, uh, I, I really loved two of her movies, and I will always thank her for having directed them. Um, and that is, of course, big with a young Tom Hanks and uh, a league of their own with an older Tom Hanks and uh, a wondrous cast. I, I thought that movie was just fantastic. So A League of Their Own, and, and, and Penny Marshall was one of the, you know, first women in the modern era, I guess, to be able to uh, direct and to show that women can direct top-grossing Academy Award-nominated and winning kinds of films. Uh, hmm. I was never a uh, sitcom viewer, never have been. I've caught some uh, in my youth and uh, in my, I just, I somehow am resistant to the genre. I, I can't quite explain why. I don't like it. I, I don't like the, um, it's not that I don't like it, it just doesn't, It seems like it's so formulaic. I mean, so clearly formulaic that even great acting, great writing, great gags just don't don't do it for me. I can't get hooked on a sitcom. I can appreciate an episode, but I can't get hooked on a sitcom. But her big start, of course, was Laverne and Shirley set in 1950s, early 60s Milwaukee. Um, and then from there, I, I mean, the fact is, is that she went to, um, she was born in the Bronx, and then she went out to uh, California following her older brother, Gary, who was already uh, extremely successful um, out there, uh, a comedy writer. So I came from, that was a funny family. Uh, and uh, she got her first breaks uh, nepotistically uh, and proved that sometimes uh, nepotism does uh, tap people who are qualified. Uh, and I guess her first break was when uh, he cast her he was the producer of The Odd Couple and he cast her as a uh, as Jack Klugman's secretary, and, and that 
I mean, that role became, not that I watched it, but she became a beloved character. And then, you know, went on. I did not know she was ill. It's sad. I always liked her because she seemed so down to earth, so real and uh, so self-deprecating and I got a kick out of her. She didn't seem like a Hollywood woman. You know what I mean? And I, I mean, there is a, a sort of a template of these Hollywood folks, and, and that puts me off. I mean, people who fit into that just <laughs> puts me off. And, and in fact, in the New York Times obit, there was a very Hollywood thing she said, Um, she said, Gret, she said, my greatest regret, that's when I was a size zero, and there wasn't a size zero. I mean, just, again, haha, that's funny, but on the other hand, um, it shows that, that Hollywood obsession with a singular and, uh, creepy-looking body type, if you ask me. I mean, again, not like most humans look. So usually if it's, you know, and it is, the getting close to the end of the year, um, I grouse a few times about all the lists. <laughs> I hate lists. I hate, I mean, these top ten Top ten, and I have always maintained that in a woman-oriented world, instead of the patrimony in which we live, there would not be these lists. There would not be constant ranking going on. I really don't know of many women, I don't know of any, if you want to know the truth, who have ev ever said to me, so what are your top, t what are the top three, what are your, t what's your favorite, what's your top, and I, I don't think it's, I don't think women really, do we, I mean, maybe some do, it's silly to think that all women think alike, but, I mean, I, I think anthropologists, sociologists, psychologists, and everybody else would agree that the male um, of our species is much more concerned with hierarchy, who's on top, um, and, and ranking constantly than women are. Uh, women in their lives, you know, tend to exist uh, by, by helping each other. You don't worry about who's on top. It's, uh, it's more for lack of a better word, collegial. Uh, but men, it's, uh, ooh, you guys, it's a much, much harsher king of the mountain uh, kind of view. And another reason I don't like you, who's your favorite, what's your best, and I think I, I don't have a clue. I mean, do you really have a favorite? Can you rank? If I, I mean, there's movies I love, but I wouldn't put one ahead of another. 
Well, if you were on a desert island and you could only pick one book, one movie, one song. My son is always asking me stuff like that, and I always just say, oh, shut up. I don't know. So I've been looking at these top ten lists and getting annoyed. Um, I really, I, I don't get it. I do want to say, though, that um, in the top ten movie list of in the Wall Street Journal today, <laughs> uh, and I don't think they're ranked. I think I think what this guy is, Joe Mor Morgenstern, I think what he did is he picked a number one, and then he picked nine more in no particular order. But in no particular order, I, I do want to say that uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor uh, about Fred Rogers uh, made his list. And I think he, he obviously nailed why it has been so, so well-received. Not that it isn't beautifully done, but especially well-received uh, because of the time that we live in. He said, with all the anger and the stupidity swirling around these days, this portrait of Fred Rogers is not only heartwarming, but it's valuable because it's a reminder that a profoundly good man once occupied a place of prominence in children's television and that he offers a model of what the medium might bring forth once again. I wouldn't count on it. I mean, there's so many offerings out there that I guess there could be a uh, Mr. Rogers-like uh, figure that could achieve some success, but never, of course, um, with the power and reach that Fred had by virtue of the fact that there, there were essentially three to four television stations um, to choose from and nobody doing anything like what he was doing. I mean, it was just decidedly anti-everything that any television producer would tell you is necessary. So, And uh, this guy's top of the list, too, was Roma, <laughs> uh, the film I mentioned. Oh, speaking of films on Netflix and stuff that I mentioned, there's also something on Netflix, and someone, uh, Felicity, reminded it, me of it yesterday. I happened to watch it well I have to mention I have to admit I wearied toward the end but it was just because I was exhausted and wanted to go to bed um, but um, it is uh, Springsteen on Broadway and you know Springsteen has had this one-man show on Broadway and like Hamilton God you know God help you if you want a ticket to it uh, this is uh, the New America Theater for the 1% uh, and the Connected. And, uh, but thank God Netflix uh, filmed a production. And uh, it's, well, 
what Felicity said is fantastic storytelling and music, a must-see. And, yeah, he, he, it's very well done. You know, a one-person show, when you got people who know how to put a one-person show together, as opposed to the one I did, um, can be a powerful thing. One human's story, one life story. And, you know, the ones that get to, uh, to Broadway are, uh, are the life stories of, of celebrities and of people that we know in some measure. So I think it's always sort of surprising when somebody like uh, Bruce Springsteen, who we have a sense of, we know, we think we know, uh, sort of opens himself um, on stage in a way that we have not seen uh, before. And it's very disarming and uh, interesting. And I think for him, might have been like a, like a psychoanalysis, you know, because he went through, uh, sort of figured out, maybe he knew before, but what drove him, what mattered to him. And a lot of it, of course, is something that he couldn't get, which was his father's love. Ain't that often the case with successful men. Overachievers. The other one-man show I saw that blew me away, and I still can't get over it, because I thought, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> You're kidding me, right? Was Mike Tyson. And if you've never seen Mike Tyson's one-man show, check it out. Um, I found it fascinating, and I found him disarming as well. <laughs> Mike Tyson, who has bit people's ears off, and I mean, uh, accused of rape and went to, I mean, all this Mike Tyson? Uh, done right. And it underscores that people are not cartoon figures. They are complicated. Very complicated. So I did want to let you know that. And while I'm just sort of on people, um, I want to also note uh, local sculptor, artist, performance artist, activist, extraordinary woman all around, uh, Vanessa German. I, I want to, if you've never seen Vanessa in performance, uh, I would uh, make a point of trying to do that. Uh, she's a force. <laughs> she's a, a true force. Uh, we once had a, a, a friendship, and I think it was I who was unable to withstand the force of her personality. I I sort of I, I I backed away after a while 
but I was so thrilled to see that um, she won a big, I mean, she's won tons of awards. I'm waiting for the MacArthur Award, one of those genius awards for her. Uh, she certainly would be the kind of person in the running. Um, but, and I do own one of her, one of her doll sculptures. It's one of her earlier ones, and it looks so primitive <laughs> in relation to the ones that she has done since. I've had it for ages. Um, but her work is all over the place now, and she is in demand as an actress, as a... She just starred in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom here. She's... Uh, she just won this big award from the chicken guy, Frank Perdue. <laughs> He's got an award uh, along with one of the Waltons. They've got a museum down in Arkansas there. And uh, they instituted some kind of an o award for art. And they she just got the second one that they've awarded. They award them every two years. She didn't even know the award existed. And uh, Mr. Purdue called her the other day. She lives in Homewood, and uh, and he was he identified himself and started telling her about this award he had. And she was saying, "Well, that's real nice." And then he told her that she'd won it, and she said, "Wow, well, that's real nice too." And and then he said, um, "And there there is a cash um, award that comes with it, uh, two hundred thousand dollars." And uh, she started crying. She says, uh, Vanessa will make $200,000 go a, a long way. I used to buy art supplies for her, for her art house, this um, place where neighborhood children come and, and draw and paint and sculpt. And she, she, She's, a, I, I got to tell you, an amazing woman, and I, I wish, I don't know how she um, is able to sustain friendships, actually, <laughs> because she's a dynamo, an extraordinary dynamo of a woman. And uh, I'm just happy to see her. It made me miss her when I read about this, and... Um, Apparently, she is now working on um, sort of resisting any gentrification that she sees starting to happen in Homewood. Uh, she lives in a part of Homewood that is not, you know, it's the kind of part of Homewood that a lot of, you know, I can imagine folks, white folks, you know, fearful of entering. Um you know, where there have been drive-by shootings where, you know, stuff happens. And she's this force out there. And it's hard to, uh, I mean, I, I know that I think Steel City Media was doing a, um, not Steel City Media, Steel Town Entertainment was doing, uh, following her around doing a documentary on her. I don't know if that ever was finished. She's the kind of person that's going to, 
be very well known after a while. And uh, that 200000 is going to allow her to repair some of these uh, buildings uh, that she uh, has on the street that the kids come to after school. And uh, she wants to finish work on what she's calling the Museum of Resilience, which is also part of her little neighborhood there. And uh, she means that as a place to, here's her quote, to reckon with the trauma and violence and to transform all of that into a healing future of hope and love where our lives can be sustained she has real big ideas and they don't daunt her she just jumps in she wants to do some things with it with Westinghouse High School she wants to establish self-care awards to other activists who have no money, no means, who are under financial stress. Uh, so, I, um, one of the last times I saw Vanessa, I attended her mother's funeral in Homewood, and uh, her mother was an extraordinary artist as well, whose work should be in museums all over the country. And Vanessa had, where the reception after the, after the funeral, Vanessa had put up an installation of her mother's quilts. You have never seen anything like it. I was transfixed. And Vanessa learned her her sewing skills, and she has sewing skills. She makes her own clothes, and they're glorious from her mother. But seeing her mom's art, oh, my God. So this is an amazing uh, woman. And uh, Vanessa is now the uh, the winner of their of this big $200,000 award. I mean, she's she's won so many awards. It's ridiculous. I again, I'm just waiting on the uh the MacArthur award <laughs> cuz she's made. She's made for that award. Made for it. Okay, I know this is all not uh, my normal subject. Oh, I came upon this, and this is, again, a science thing kind of thing. I know, I'm avoiding Michael Flynn. I'm avoiding uh, uh, the Facebook revelations in the New York Times today. Um, you know, I think a lot of people should rethink their presence on Facebook. I really do. I really do. I mean, or are we just going to give ourselves over 
lock, stock, barrel, intimate details of our lives, our children's lives, our friends' lives, just going to give it all over to uh, advertisers because that's all this is about. Facebook has only one commodity, and it's you. And man, they're selling you left, right, upside down, and inside out. They're selling parts of you that some of your friends don't even know about. They got deep, dark secrets on you, and they're selling them. They're selling them to Yahoo. They're selling them to Amazon. Jeez. Okay, I wasn't going to talk about that, but I really... I mean, I never had a Facebook account. My only Facebook account is the one that was established because of this program. I rarely look at it. I did recently and then reminded myself of why I didn't. But I, I, you know, that is something that Amy, my producer, keeps up. We put the shows up there. But um, I, I can see where somebody might just spend an awful lot of their life on that. But I think it's a deal made with the devil in a lot of ways. Just saying. Um, there was a piece, and this is a sciency piece, and it was um, in, I think, the Washington Post yesterday or the day before. And it's just a warning. So I want to, I always like to sort of see these things and then tell you about it. And then so when it happens in the two months or so, I can say, remember? I told you. I warned you. I remember doing that back in like uh, 2010, 2010, excuse me, 19, geez, 1999, about America getting attacked by terrorists. And uh, there was this frightening report that had come out, and I, I remember spending almost uh, two hours on my radio show one day delineating what was heading our way, and then nothing happened. Nothing happened. Our government didn't do anything that we were aware of. Media didn't cover it, and uh, and then there was that day, September 11th. That we now remember. This isn't quite as, uh, but it's it, it, it has to do with weather again, but it has to do with winter particularly. And uh, it has to do with those uh, meteorologists, not climatologists, meteorologists who watch something called the polar vortex. And the guys who are watching the polar vortex are starting to uh, say, ah, uh, ah, uh, ooh, ooh, uh. they are sending up <laughs> flares. Well, uh, we looking a little scary here. Okay, so the polar, I can't go into this because I don't understand it enough myself, and I'll be damned if I'm going to sit here and read an article to you. But the polar vortex is described in this article 
as a roaring river of air, okay, winding around the North Pole. Hence, <laughs> the polar vortex. It's up there, and it's been up there for a long time. There are climate researchers uh, that monitor this vortex uh, every day. Um, and they use those prediction models, un not unlike the prediction models for uh, hurricanes. And the U.S. has this prediction model, and the Europeans have a prediction model, and they often don't necessarily coincide. But the American model is uh, projecting that at the end of this month, which is essentially already here, or in early January, uh, the vortex could be what they call disrupted. And once that old vortex gets disrupted, all hell breaks loose down here. And it means harsh, harsh weather conditions. So I never remember one year from the next, but they said last February, last year, the vortex had stayed relatively stable and we were enjoying last year an extraordinarily uh, mild, or at least unremarkable, winter. And then, somewhere there in February, this polar vortex split. And that fracture set off a chain reaction which created this blast of historic cold in Europe and in Asia. Now, you're forgiven for not remembering that because you weren't in Europe and Asia in all likelihood. But the kind of weather and air that normally is at home in Siberia went way, way south. And then the same kind of piercing cold hit us in March. It triggered four consecutive nor'easters along the east coast. March 2nd was the first. Five days later, another one comes roaring up, March 7th. March 13th, March 21. I don't know if you remember it, but man, they were coming. It didn't stop. The impacts of those storms were felt well into the end of April. Um, anyway, it looks like, well, here's what the guy, the main guy who watches this says, confidence is growing in a significant polar vortex disruption in the coming weeks. I'm just saying. I guess it was, it's very cold this morning, and it was really cold last night, and I was, when I was out walking the dog, but I'll tell you, 
I looked up at the sky, and it was so clear. I saw more stars than I'd seen in ages. I even recognized things. I thought, my God, that's Orion's belt. Just so, all of it, and the moon so bright. But that's why it was so dang cold, because there was no cloud cover. My old weekend weather girl was coming out, I know. Anyway, uh, the American uh, model uh, says that uh, there could be a disruption this month. The European model says early next month. Either way, they both models are saying uh, it looks like there's going to be a sudden stratospheric warming event. Don't even ask me. But that doesn't mean we get warm. It means we get blasted. I'm just saying. And then they, they explain what that is, and this is where I don't understand it. Um, but they're saying hunker down because this could, we could be in for a, a really... I mean, the people who have prepared these winter outlooks for a dec more than a decade um, are, are all saying this. And if they know what they're doing, um, I'm just telling you, you might want to buy one of those heavy blankets. <laughs> or two or three. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, and he says, unfortunately, a lot of this climate change, uh, uh, shrinking sea ice in the regions around the Arctic and the North Pole is probably behind a lot of this. It, it tends to increase these vortex disruptions, and that only means that the continental United States, Europe, and Asia may be facing a future of these kinds of wild snowy and cold winters. Just saying. So, I mean, if we're all really complaining about the weather in another month, I just want to say, you have been forewarned. Uh, Chris writes, unlike you, I grew up on Laverne and Shirley. I was a huge fan of her work. People compare her and Cindy Williams to Lucy and Ethel back when that show was on. I always thought she was so talented as an actress and a director. I can remember her first role on TV was playing uh, Oscar Madison's Jack Klugman's secretary on The Odd Couple. If you want a good read, get her biography titled My Mother Was Nuts. <laughs> you will laugh out loud while reading it. You are correct in that she was not your typical Hollywood type. Being from the Bronx kept her and her brother Gary grounded. I was so sad to hear of her passing. Let me prep this story a little for you. If Laverne and Shirley was on in reruns, I had my son watch it with me, and it still holds up. He always thought it was funny. He's now 20 years old, and the Logo channel runs reruns. He still tries to catch it now if it's on. I was driving to work yesterday listening to the 70s, station on Sirius and they play the theme song from Laverne and Shirley and they were doing it before her death was announced 
I had the idea to get him the second season for Christmas. The second season has some of the best episodes. Ordered it online yesterday and find out a few hours later that she had passed. How ironic is that? Yeah. Enjoyed your show with Sally Wigan. Can't wait for her to come back. Sally says she will come back once a month. So we'll see. Oh, Jewel has sent me a weighted blanket. Okay, here it is. A weighted blanket. <laughs> oh, so a lot of different people make them. Uh, well, they all look different. I don't know. but they're So they're all uh, a weighted blanket. Why doesn't anybody... Okay. Uh, all right. I don't know. I would just like somebody to... Oh, here's what it says. Looking for a natural non-drug treatment for insomnia? The cure just might come in the form of a weighted blanket. Uh, the pressure these blankets provide has been used to help soothe symptoms associated with insomnia, anxiety, chronic pain. Jeez, I better order one. Sensory processing disorder, ADHD, and autism. We'll see. So it is. So it's, it is. It's, it, it must be the same kind of thing that Temple Grandin, uh, yeah, figured out. Wow. Originally targeted towards children and adults who struggle with autism and ADHD, weighted blankets have expanded their borders and are now helping a wide range of people settle down, feel good, and sleep better. But I see why Randy Bauman was saying, isn't this perfect for our time? That we are all so anxious and stressed. That is just uh, part and parcel of living in our, in our time, in our place. Whether we admit it or not, um, no matter how high, highly functional we present ourselves, that a weighted blanket, that something that used to be used for children with autism, <laughs> is now something <laughs> that adults want, need. Huh. Well, okay. Um, they're similar to comfort, but they have sand? What? There's sand in them? They have sand, beads, or some other. Oh, some have sand, some have beads, or other heavy material between. So it's like a quilt, but inside, instead of down, there's... <laughs> huh. There is no extensive research on weighted blankets. The assumption, though, is that they work. I was right. They work by providing deep pressure that stimulates the release of serotonin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, this leads to decreased anxiety, a feeling of calm. It's similar to the feeling you get while hugging a loved one or the calming effect of swaddling a newborn. Oh, geez. Okay, well, I might have sold myself. I don't know. 
I'll let you know. I'll get me some weighted blanket or something. Well, this show isn't going where I thought it would. My God. I, I did have all this stuff here. This heavy stuff, heavy stuff. But it'll keep, right? Uh, thank you, Jewel, for that. Uh, Roger writes, listen to your show last night. You and Susan are a riot. I like the F-bomb counter idea. <laughs> By the way, I was staying, saying, I was saying, Baby, It's Cold Outside was a date rape song 20 years ago. <laughs> I don't think it is. I understand what you and your sister were saying about flirting, but when you listen to classic old-timers sing the song, I keep hearing, no. And my dad told me to be a gentleman <laughs> and not force the issue. And if a woman said no, that was it. Well, good for your dad. But, you know, the movies, I, my sister mentioned the other day that I, she doesn't share my affection for old movies. And one of the horrors of old movies but that I just watch and marvel at is the sexism and the racism. <laughs> it's just, wow. But it reminds you of how, how very little removed we are from those cultural norms. Um... And I think, tell me how many times in a movie, and when I was growing up, it was constant. Movies in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, I don't know, where a man would kid, and it's how kids, you know, you're a kid, and you're trying to figure out how, what is it like with a man and a woman, how do you kiss, what's happening, how does that work? And you would often, you know, you, movies which told you how. And these were before, and these were movies when people were st they showed couples still sleeping in twin beds. <laughs> but tell me how many times you saw the scene where a man forcefully kisses a protesting woman, right? The woman's always. And he just <laughs> overpowers her. And she might even still, when the kiss starts, is still, mm, mm, and then she just melts. She melts. And it's a passionate kiss that's going both ways. I must have seen that play out a, pff, hundreds of times. And so did all the boys that I dated. And so did all the men who are my age and even younger. So Hollywood and television taught us that a man should persist. And that if you persist long enough, the woman will melt. Right? That's the lesson I learned. 
And I even remember a few times when I first started, like, engaging in some, uh, you know, little hanky-panky, where I would say, no, you know, no, no, a sort of reenact. And my no didn't mean no. I was doing what I had learned to do, to play that role, to show both my, I guess, purity, but under it, my passion, right? So when you when you look at these old movies, and they don't even have to be that old, boy, are you reminded of what was considered the norm. And I think the strides that have been made, both in the sexism and the racism, have been pretty incredible. But boy, (laughs) they are extraordinarily persistent. So I don't know. I don't know. And I... Even... I still am able to enjoy those movies, even though I'm, you know, taken aback. To me, they're sort of like a historical record. And you can't ban (laughs) the historical record. It's important to... isn't it, to remind ourselves where we came from, what was, this was what a man was, this is what a woman was, this is the way they intersected. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm not one for trying to whitewash or, you know, do recidivist history and, and stuff like that, and I really think you know what? I'm thinking of like some... Ro- I love the Rolling Stones. I love their music. There are so many unbelievably brutal misogynistic songs under my thumb. <laughs> I still... Under my thumb. <laughs> you know, I will... I, I just... I don't know... You know, we grow up with a soundtrack, and the soundtrack that we hear in our teens and uh, 20s, that's the soundtrack that stays with us the rest of our lives. We can continue to enjoy the music that comes after, as and I enjoy the music that comes way before my soundtrack. So I can, you know, sing 20s favorites and 30s favorites and 40s favorites. I love those songs. And they can't be expected to hew to a time and, and a stricture that didn't exist when they were created. 
I'm generally never for throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so I, I will continue to um, whatever, enjoy it. Okay, my the guy I didn't know about who I really now am a big, big fan of is Federal District Court uh, uh, Judge uh, Emmett G. Sullivan. Let's hear it for him. Wow. So he's the one who unloaded yesterday on Flynn, much to the astonish astonishment of everybody. Isn't that interesting? The astonishment of Robert Mueller and his prosecutors who had said, we don't think Flynn, Flynn has really helped us, let him go. And the judge, the, we forgot about the judge. It's not Mueller's job to sentence. It's not Mueller's job. It's not the prosecution's job. It's the judge. And this judge takes this stuff very seriously. And um, because he'd come down on prosecutors in his past, especially rightfully, in the conviction of Alaskan Senator Ted Stevens. I recall that. And I recall when he upended and threw out that conviction. And I remember initially I was like, what? And then I listened to what the judge said that the prosecution had done. They cheated! It was not fair. It was not a fair trial. They withheld. And he was right. He was absolutely right. This is a righteous <laughs> judge. And I guess people on the right, I didn't know this, were assuming he would feel the same about the overreach of uh, the special prosecutor. And, uh, and that's what they were banking on. And then that only got solidified when Mueller's team said, and we think he should, you know, not serve uh, a jail sentence. But the judge maybe had other ideas. Who knows what will end up happening. But I loved his, like, Old Testament fury. And righteousness. And I loved that all of those who like to think in neat little boxes couldn't point to, well, he's a democratic judge. No, he's actually harkens back again to a different time. And let us fondly remember that time that Ronald Reagan first appointed this guy to a position. And then George H.W. Bush appointed him to a position. And then, lo and behold, Bill Clinton appoints him. Can you imagine that happening now? Well, strangely, Barack Obama tried to do the same thing with Merrick Garland, didn't he? And you see how that went. Which brings us back to the, our number one job in the new year. Finish off this undemocratic, authoritarian, power-at-all-costs Republican Party. 
That is the job of an American patriot now. And all you have to do is ask the likes of formerly strong conservative Republicans who are saying the same. Stephen Schmidt, who ran McCain's campaign. Max Boot, who has been a uh, hawk, right-wing Republican from day one. Friggin' Bill Crystal. I mean, is that his name? Yeah, I think. I mean, God, we even have dyed-in-the-wool conservative Republicans telling us this is a necessary and righteous cause. These Republicans must be destroyed. Doesn't quite seem like a Christmas-like message, but still. That was not my Christmas message. That was my New Year's message. And that ends it for this uh, here show. Wow, it's not anything like what I expected, but excuse me, I got to run. I got to go out and get a weighted blanket. I do. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.